Welcome Needs More Words, a podcast about writing and reading because we're all stuck on something. I'm Vicki. And I'm Margaret. Today, we're talking all about tropes, what they are, which ones we like, and how we use them. Also, if after listening to this podcast, you end up stuck on TV tropes, well, that's just how things go. And it's not our fault. I mean, it is our fault, but it's also not our fault. TV tropes just sort of does that to you. But before we do that, we're going to take a look at what we are writing and reading. So what have you been writing since uh, we've recorded, whenever that was? It's been a while. So I wrote two fanfics, one of which I edited with a broken elbow. As one does when one breaks one's elbow, I would assume, since I've never done it, thankfully. Well, if it hadn't been for an exchange that had a deadline, I would have just waited until I could use both hands. Fair, fair. But since I had a deadline and the person I had in the exchange was the person who convinced me to sign up for it in the first place, I really wanted to do it, especially because unlike certain pick exchanges I've done in the past, I really liked my prompt. Ooh, that is sometimes rare when you're assigned a prompt. I like the exchanges where you grab a prompt, but when you're assigned it, it sometimes uh, gets a little uh, weird. But yes, the prompt I was given was, Reset the counter. Kate and Jarrah's and Harrison Dula. There were several to choose from, but two of them included kissing for no reason and saying I love you for no reason. And I felt like these belonged in the same fic. Yeah, it works. So I wrote something very, very fluffy. And at least I had written it all before the skating incident. That is good. I think uh, writing on it with a broken elbow might be worse than editing. Yes. And then there was also the fun of, there was a post floating around Tumblr talking about how, as we all know, the captain of a ship can perform a wedding. Mm-hmm. And the first mate can officiate a wedding if the captain is the one getting married. And the second mate can officiate a wedding if the captain and first mate are marrying each other. Woo-hoo! And this seemed like the sort of weirdly specific regulation that the Rebel Alliance would have. And then I decided it would be really funny for the entire rest of the ghost crew to argue about who is, in fact, the second mate. Good times, yeah. And then on the original front, I did a little bit of work on Flight of Caprice. I'm ramping up for that to be my Camp Nano project in April, which, since we are the best at releasing these in a timely manner, it is currently March 30th. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully I can make some serious progress on that and get back on those writing goals that got a little derailed by not being able to use my left hand. Yeah, minor problem. Yeah, it was just a thing. I did manage to get duties and customs submitted to Uncanny and it got rejected at 5.58 today. And so I will probably send that back out again to some of the markets I was originally planning to submit it to before Uncanny opened. And then I've also got Rebecca Hates You All just about ready to go back out. What have you been doing in the mumble mumble time since we last recorded? Well, I actually did some work on a pair of queens. Woohoo! Amazing. Not a lot because I've just been kind of busy. I was teaching a course at the local college and ringette's been ramping down, and but uh, was pretty busy. So I didn't do a, a lot, but I did some. So that's good. I've also started working on a few different fanfics that I had in the works. Uh, remembered they existed and opened up the Google <laughs> box. So, and then I also did manage to submit to Uncanny. I said usability test. I have not yet gotten my rejection or, you know, theoretically possibly an acceptance. I guess I should be expecting it sometime soon. So that's cool. And then also while I was uh, getting usability test ready, I kind of glanced at my folder of other short stories and remembered that the woman with blood on her lips is probably in good enough shape to start submitting. Uh, That was the NYC Midnight political satire vampire story, because that's how I roll when you give me political satire. Some men just deserve to get eaten by vampires. It's true. No matter what that judge thought. So I'm, I'm also behind on my writing goals, but not, not so far behind that I cannot catch up. And I am also considering properly doing Camp Nano. I'm not really sure uh, but yet, but if I do, I can at least unofficially work on a pair of queens some more. And the nice thing with Camp Nano is you can make your goal whatever. <laughs> yeah, I've seen the Discord for the Ottawa area ramping things up. So there'll be write-ins and stuff, which is was another one of my writing goals, so I can kind of wrap that in as well. 
Good times. Also good times is reading. And again, since it's been a large gap, presumably we both managed to finish a few books in the uh, time since we last spoke. Let's see. So the first thing I read was The Dancing Goddesses, which is a nonfiction book by Elizabeth Whalen Barber. It's one of those we're going to talk about everything kind of nonfiction books where it's looking at folklore, archaeology and the history of Eastern European folklore and Eastern European folk dance. It kind of went all over the place. It was really interesting. Maybe a little less focused than it could have been. It could have done with a little focus, (laughs) but some books are just like that. It felt like it was trying to explain everything. Mm-hmm. That's a common nonfiction problem, or maybe not so much a problem, but a thing. It is a reality. <laughs> yeah. For a certain caliber of nonfiction book that you can club someone with. Mm-hmm. Um, turns out there is a Rebels manga, which is adapting mostly the Ezra-centric episodes with really pretty art. And the art is pretty. I read Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie which I really enjoyed. It just really neat stuff with language. It actually manages to do a split timeline without annoying me in the timeline that's further ahead by just being deliberately obtuse about what happened in the older timeline, which is impressive. (laughs) Most impressive. So the funny thing is when I first started using Storygraph, it kept recommending Anne Leckie books. And I told Chess about that. And she initially thought it was a Fancy that, it's recommending me an author I already love. I had not, in fact, read anything by Anne Leckie, but now that I have read a book by Anne Leckie, I understand why Tess thought this was a joke. And isn't it nice that Ancillary Justice uh, has at least one more book in the series, or is it, I don't, can't remember if it's a two book or a three book. Uh, there's several books, and then there's also a side story about completely ordinary people who are not part of the big, large-scale events, and clearly I'm going to read that. <laughs> That does sound right up your alley, yes. Everyone knows what I like, including the story graph algorithm. Apparently. Good job, algorithm. Yeah, so it looks like it's a trilogy, and then there's that side book. And then currently, because I realize I've had Vicky's copy for an uncertain amount of time. Since before our, our cancelled trip, because it's set in San Francisco, and I'm like, you must read this before we go to San Francisco. Oh, yeah, that that's why... So you've had it for two years. But I'm reading it. Yay! So the book is Sourdough by Robin Sloan. It's a great book. We've got our main character who programs robot arms and is working in the tech industry and is having her soul sucked by the tech industry. Yeah, it is a very San Francisco book. And then she gets gifted a sourdough starter. Yes! Thus being ahead of the sourdough curve. Yes, this was written in the before times. Mm -hmm. Before we all started making sourdough because... Well, it just felt like the thing to do. You, you couldn't control much, but in theory, you could control your sourdough. <laughs> Kinda. Not really, but you could try. It was at least a smaller scale problem. <laughs> All right. So the most important question about these three books, what color were their covers? Have you gotten any colors done in our reading challenge? Uh, so Ancillary Justice has a green cover. Ooh, okay. Sadly, Dancing Goddesses, the cover is cream. Oh, not so helpful. And the Rebels manga, I could call it navy, but Sourdough has a blue cover anyway. That version is a very blue cover. There, are, There is actually a, a newer cover that I do not like as much. The good blue cover is the one that I physically own and you physically have. But yeah, I, I cannot fudge Dancing Goddesses to be any of the colors. It's just sort of the case with a lot of covers out there. Yeah, I mean, I guess if I really push it, the Rebels manga, Ezra is wearing an orange jumpsuit. But that would really be pushing it. It's mostly black. Way too many of the books in my shame pile have black covers. We should have made black one of the colors. Anyway, what are you reading where you may or may not be fudging the cover colors? All right. So since we recorded last, I finished Uncrowned Queen. And let's just say that it is definitely an early contender for my nonfiction of the year. That is the biography of Margaret Beaufort, who had an exceptionally amazing life. Top tier historical women. Uh, I love her very much, even if that cover was pretty much just black. Uh, And then after I finally finished that, I kind of seemed to have gotten a rereading binge. I didn't realize quite how much I'd been rereading. First, I started with one of my favorite romance series, probably the only 
contemporary romance series I really, really love is Lucy Parker's London Celebrities series. And I usually reread book two on a regular basis. This year I was like, let's, let's switch it up. And I read book four and then decided to reread book one, The Austin Playbook and Act Like It. Both very fun reads. I'm looking at their covers and I can't really say there's a dominant color, alas. And then I also reread Lucy Foley's The Guest List, which is a very gray cover. So not Michelle, but it's a a fun thriller about a couple is getting married on this isolated island. And then surprise, someone ends up dead. Uh, And this does have a dual timeline that would probably drive you crazy because they are by necessity being very vague about what's going on. Though in, in fairness, most of the characters don't know what's going on in the future bit. So the, the confusion it kind of works a bit better than it might otherwise. Uh, one thing, I've read a lot of Lucy Foley's books. I uh, quite enjoy her. They're a bit samey, but it's a formula that works, so why not? And one thing I really find interesting with her is that you always end up with like every character sort of gets what they deserve. No more so than the guest list. I won't spoil by saying who it is that ends up dead, but by the end of the book, you are glad they are dead. Ha! Because they were terrible. (laughs) They definitely had it coming. And yes, you're like, yep, everyone is happy. It's good. Excellent. And then I also decided, as I was coming back from on the train, I was like, I'm I'm liking this rereading thing. So why don't I reread Sourdough by Robin Sloan? Which we just told you about. Yes, which thankfully I also own on the ebook because it is one of my favorite books of all time. So I could read it even though my physical copy was still in Toronto where it had been for two years. Yes, things happen. <laughs> and yes, it is a blue cover, but I already did blue. So I, I've now read two blues and one purple. And that's that's it. I pre-ordered this book, Scorpica. It has, uh, I think it's yellow or orange. I think it's yellow. And so that's going to be my yellow read because uh, it is very, very yellow. Yeah, I haven't figured out what I'm doing for yellow. Yeah, so on that note, we'll just take a quick break and move into our main topic. Yay, main topic. All right, so today we are talking about tropes. And as we like to do here, let's start with defining our terms. What is a trope? So trope kind of covers a lot of things, but the best description I found, which I'm pretty sure also came from Wikipedia. It usually does. Their definitions of commonly used things are usually pretty on point. So what they said was commonly recurring literary and rhetorical devices, motifs, or cliches in creative works. Important to note, it is not synonymous with cliche. Yeah, they become cliche when they're overused. So even though I'm actually surprised to see we're not talking about the chosen one trope, but the chosen one trope has become a bit of a cliche. I feel like we're not talking about the chosen one trope because it's too big. (laughs) Yeah, and you've also may have mentioned it before uh, when talking about the unchosen ones. Yeah, I I think I've said everything I need to say about chosen ones. No doubt I will have more to say when I'm revising the unchosen ones. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt. I had anticipated it might have turned up on your least favorite tropes, but... Um, it's not it's not a terrible trope it's just a little overused it's one where it's not on my least favorite because I love to see authors play with it mm-hmm. I don't like to see it done straight anymore but I love to see it played with and so we also are going to be relying heavily on tvtropes.org for their names and definitions of various tropes, though that is not the only place that these are known as. In fact, uh, one of the first ones I'm going to talk about is commonly known by a name that does not exist on TV Tropes. I was surprised to learn that didn't have an entry. I, I was a little surprised, yeah. So we're going to start uh, by looking at our favorite tropes, then we're going to look at our least favorite tropes, and then we can talk about how we use them in our own writing so, what is one of your favorite tropes, Margaret? One of my favorites, and I actually had to kind of sit there and browse TV tropes trying to figure out what I was actually going to pick, but then I realized, yeah, non-action guy. Yeah, that, that sounds very you. Yeah, the, the character whose only real thing that they have to offer is bringing the donuts. I love these characters because they're always in so far over their head and no one would blame them for backing out and not having anything to do with this nonsense because it is clearly not in their pay grade and they always do it and they find ways to help and make it work and they they do it because it's 
the right thing to do. And yeah, they're not the chosen one. No one expects this of them, but they do it. And I love them for it in all their donut fetching glory. Yeah, well, it's definitely a very good character type to have. Because I mean, you do need, it's not quite an everyman, but it sort of is. Sometimes it is. And that's why O'Brien must suffer. Oh, poor O'Brien. Deep Space Nine is always breaking, and it's all on Chief O'Brien to fix it. Yep. And he's just just an engineer. He just wants things to be working so that he can have a break and spend time with his family. And actually, probably a classic example of this is the fact that I watched the Kenobi trailer, and I very quickly realized something. I'm gonna get attached to Uncle Owen. Also, it's worth noting that basically everyone knew that was going to be my reaction to the trailer. Yeah, I said you are nothing if not consistent. I accept this most days. But speaking of being consistent, what do you like? So my trope comes mainly from the world of romance novels and is commonly called enemies to lovers. Yet TV tropes, the best I could find it was a page called Foyer, which they break down into several different ones. Uh, we've got belligerent sexual tension, dating Catwoman, villainous crush. Well, excuse me, princess. And a few other things. I think belligerent sexual tension is probably the one I like best where romantic partners aren't enemies per se, but they get into arguments. They get physical and then very physical. It is worth noting you do ship Batman and Catwoman though. <laughs> I mean, yes, that that is true. I have to admit, if you'd asked me, like, oh, maybe even a few weeks ago, I wouldn't have said that Enemies Lovers was a thing I really, really liked. It wouldn't have been, like, a top trope for romance. And then Bridget in Season 2 dropped, and <laughs> it was almost by HEA, but I decided I was going to talk about it here instead, so it's not. But it was really fun, and Kate and Anthony are great, and... This season has been fairly split in the fan base, but I'm of the opinion that season two is better than season one. Season two has problems, particularly the last four episodes. The first four, really good. But the last four, the pacing kind of goes askew. Also, the effect of the love triangle on Edwina's characterization was not always the best, but that's nothing to do with our trope, so let's put that aside. But anyway, celebrities, I think the reason that I wouldn't have said it was one of my favorites is that I have a big caveat in that the enemy section really needs to be navigated very carefully. You can't have them like actually really hate each other. And if you go too far into active hatred, hostility, it does not work for me anymore. And so that's why Kate and Anthony are peak example of the type of enemies lovers I like, which again, does fit more with our belligerent sexual tension where, you know, despite the conflict, there's an attraction and the conflict is usually there to hide the attraction. That's fair. Rather than there being conflict, that you know, genuine conflict. Reasonable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's fun. And uh, watch Bridget in season two. It's yes. good times. Yes. Anyway, what is your next favorite trope? Did I pick this trope just to be difficult? Yes. Would you expect any less of me? Not really. Did I place it in this list very strategically? Probably. Yes. We are building up to the fact that my next favorite trope is friends to lovers. Woo! I just, I really love a relationship that is built on mutual trust and respect. So a lot of my favorite ships, at least at some point, started out as friends and they built a really strong rapport. And then they realized, oh, 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 some of these feelings are romantic, I think. Oh, I better figure out what to do with this. <laughs> and it's cute and sweet and... You don't see it as much in category romance, but it's something I really, really enjoy in romantic subplots in other genres. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite uh, romance novels is definitely a, a Friends to Lovers, though, yeah, it's not as common. Though I'd also say that's actually sort of how Bridget in season one went a little more Friends to Lovers. A little bit, yeah. That was also fake dating. Yes. Fake dating is not usually something that I, I like, but I, I thought that season one worked. I keep joking that if I can't put Shine On by Gaelic Storm on a playlist, why am I even shipping it? <laughs> it's a very cute song. Yes, I, 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 I like cute things, which is, to say the least, unfortunate. <laughs> Doesn't end well for me. 
killed cutie. <laughs> More on that later. Oh my goodness, I didn't even actually see that. <laughs> well, that's a nice segue, but we're not there yet. Yes, so what else do you enjoy? All right, so the next one I wanted to go for more of a, a plot element trope. And so I picked, one thing I like is the Batman Gambit. So this is a plan that revolves entirely around people doing exactly what you'd expect them to do. On the page, they have a screenshot of where Batman got the Joker to save him simply by counting on the Joker to be himself and have such an ego that he would never allow someone else to kill Batman. That, 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 that's a fair move. Yeah. Yeah. And then another one I actually thought I was looking for some good examples. And to please a mother, I tried to find examples that weren't Star Wars, though there were some Star Wars examples to be found later. What I thought was really good is Aladdin, who actually does this twice. First is how he gets the genie to get him out of the cave without technically using one of his three wishes. Because he, you know, makes, you know, attack like, oh, I don't think you could actually do it. And the genie was like, of course I can do it. There, it's done. Ah, you used up a wish. It's like, well, no, no, genie, you You did that yourself. And then it comes back again, of course, at the end where Aladdin tricks Jafar into wishing to be a genie. Phenomenal cosmic power. Living space. Oopsie. Um, so yeah, so Aladdin is Batman. That's where we're going with this. I just, I like when plans are smart and I like when characters are smart. I actually particularly enjoy when villains are smart, like a villain that actually is a legitimate threat because their plans sometimes work. We're not talking Dr. Claw, who is foiled by Inspector Gadget of all people. We're talking about the sophisticated villains. I pulled a lot of these tropes when I was looking for favorite tropes. I went to the page for the Vampire Diaries because that's one of my favorite media. And I'm like, this is going to have a ton of tropes. So there, there's definitely some Batman gambits in the Vampire Diaries and by villains and heroes alike. And they're great. It does. Yes, when in doubt, be Batman. Well, that's a good life choice. Well, I'm not sure that's really true. But... Yeah, yeah, that's not true at all. <laughs> Think like Batman, do not live like Batman. <laughs> that's your free life advice for the week. All right. So what's your next favorite trope? Yeah, so it's my turn to have kind of some caveats and condition, but because this is one that can get really obnoxious. Mm-hmm. but I do enjoy meta storytelling. And I guess my big caveat is I don't tend to love it when characters break the fourth wall, but I do enjoy it when the narrative itself is basically genre savvy and it realizes what it's doing and what it's playing with and when it's subverting tropes and when it's hanging a lampshade on them. I love playing around with the storytelling itself and with the conventions of the genre. But when you put it in the mouth of a character, that can get easily get really, really obnoxious, unless you're in a musical. Mm-hmm. In which case, if there's a giant who wants to kill someone, you can offer up the narrator. Yes. Musicals get away a lot more with the fourth wall because the fourth wall is ba- barely there. They're dancing on a stage. There's a reason that the fourth wall obviously comes from the stage. And there's already that level of disbelief because you know you're literally watching people on a stage but you're imagining that it is wherever that thing is actually set you know this is a woods we're in the woods yeah and what i don't like even though it's basically the narrative doing it is and it is a musical example is i hate that in a lot of modern movie musicals they seem to be embarrassed that they're a musical yeah it's a problem and they almost seem to apologize for being a musical no i'm here for a musical Please sing and dance for my entertainment. When it's within, built into the storytelling itself, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, I actually almost put something similar on, because I was thinking actually of one that's probably a little more, the characters are involved in some of the meta-ness, but Scream, why it was such a big hit was that it is a horror movie with characters who are aware of what horror movies are. Yes. And so they know what the tropes, and they, and they make fun of them. Like, never say, I'll be right back, because you won't. Yeah, and once again, proving that I read Terry Pratchett at a formative age and it warped me for life. <laughs> the Discworld literally runs on narrativium. One in a million chances will work out nine times out of ten in the Discworld, which leads to one hilarious scene where they were modifying the conditions of the shot, very carefully altering the odds so that they would be exactly one in a million. Because <laughs> one in 900,000 basically wasn't going to happen. But if they could get it up to one in a million, 
then it's a one in a million chance, but it just might work. So that's probably where my love of meta storytelling came from and probably why I like it when the characters know they're in a story. I don't tend to like it when they know they're in a movie. I think that might be the line. Yeah. When I think in Scream, it also works because most of the meta-ness is from one specific character who is who is genre savvy. Yeah. So it's not everyone who's genre. There's a different level of genre savvy. I mean, there's some characters who don't participate in the madness at all. And like, I, I loved it in one of the Doctor Who Christmas specials where the entire city of London had apparently gotten genre savvy. The Doctor lands and he's like, where is everyone? It's London on Christmas. Everyone got out because aliens always invade. Yes. I mean, with all of our the tropes, our favorite tropes and even our least favorite tropes, they can be done well and they can be done terribly. And, you know, a good execution can actually even get me on board with some of the ones that are going to be in my least favorites. Yeah. And I think my love of meta storytelling is actually what saved the chosen one trope from being on my least favorite tropes. Because <laughs> you get a lot of meta storytelling stories about the chosen one now. So what do you enjoy? <laughs> All right, so our last favorite trope, I decided to go with something that was more character-based, which is it's called, on TV Tropes calls it, took a level in badass. So this is basically when a character who kind of starts off as being the no, non-action guy. My beloved donut fetcher. Yeah, and then through the, the narrative turns into one of the, t- you know, the big badass or one of them. I think it could be a really great character evolution. As I said, I, I did go to the Vampire Diaries page when I was looking for some ideas of what tropes to put on my list. And the best example comes from Vampire Diaries, which would be Caroline Forbes. So Caroline Forbes starts out as pretty insufferable. <laughs> Season one, Caroline is kind of the worst. I, I'm fond of her, but only in retrospect. So we've actually been watching some of season one and- Jeremy, no! Yeah. Oh, Jeremy, no. But Caroline also, Caroline, no, she's not making very good choices. She's very high strung and focused on popularity and insecure as heck. And then later, I'm not going to tell you when because Margaret hasn't seen this, but eventually Caroline on a show called The Vampire Diaries becomes a vampire. And that one choice for her as a character completely changes her whole trajectory. And she becomes one of the best characters on the show. I I would argue she is the best character in the show by the end. Uh, She is awesome. She gains so much self-confidence. And she, you know, again, she gets the ability to do things beyond bringing a donut. I love it when they find the confidence to unlock the potential that was there all along. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this obviously, some of the potential was not there all along because she was not a vampire. She's got a new skill set to use. They do a really good job with the transition period of turning into a vampire and figuring out how she can manage it because we've seen some other examples of characters who turn into vampires and they don't last very long. Caroline lasts. She is a main character throughout the whole show. Yeah, a lot of them get staked real fast. Yeah. Another really good example of this would be Carol on The Walking Dead, who went from being an abused housewife to being one of the biggest badasses. Maybe a little too cold sometimes, but I love her. I haven't watched the show in years. I hope she's still alive. Okay, so those are a bunch of tropes that we like. I think they're great tropes. Now we're going to talk about some tropes that we think are a little less great and we'd like to see a little less often. Well, some of these, you know, you can do it well. The one I'm starting with is really just inherently bad writing. Yeah, I don't, I don't think this one can be done well. And that would be the idiot ball. I say I particularly dislike this in long-running franchises. That's because in a shorter work, if the work hinges, if the entire plot hinges on characters carrying the idiot ball, I'm probably just not going to like the, I'm just not going to like the property. Mm-hmm. But it is exasperating in long running franchises. In a one off episode, you're just not going to like the episode. But sometimes you'll just get an extended arc where the entire arc hinges on various characters who ought to be competent running around carrying the idiot ball. Yeah, when you got the idiot ball in your hands, your IQ has just plummeted. And sorry, Vicky's mom, it's time for a Star Wars example. <laughs> Legacy of the Force. So Legacy of the Force was a fairly late game arc in Star Wars Legends. 
And Star Wars Legends is the old continuity that is no longer canon because of Disney. A large part of Legacy of the Force involved Jason Solo becoming a Sith Lord. Ah, yes. Those of you familiar with the new canon may recognize this as the name being changed and the serial numbers being filed off in the creation of Kylo Ren. The exasperating thing is a lot of people seem to not notice that Jason was very much becoming a Sith Lord. You think that would be something you'd notice? Mara Jean in particular stood out as someone who probably should have noticed. Also, Jada seemed to forget everything she knew about being a Jedi and just knew how to have a love triangle and but that's a whole other thing. This exasperated me because I wanted to read about the characters I liked. There were characters in these books that had their names. They were not the characters I liked because these were just some random idiots. Maybe if you actually had a physical ball that turned them to idiots and that was actually the source of the problem, you might be able to pull this off. Comedy can usually break the rules. Yeah. But as a general rule, there is not a way to do an idiot ball plot properly because it is inherently bad writing for your plot to hinge on previously competent characters to suddenly be idiots yeah i mean it's basically your your characters are acting out of character Uh, i mean this is also to go back to the world of romance novels this is sort of why a lot of romance novels their third act the final challenge so often is both the couple suddenly have the idiot ball land in their lap yeah and the problem is something that could be completely cleared up if they just sat down and had an honest conversation, which is something they should be able to do with this person who they supposedly are in love with at this point and trust. I've definitely docked romance novel stars for they should trust each other enough to actually have a conversation about this. Yes, not a fan of the idiot ball. All right. So my first least favorite trope is one that can be done well, but when it's done poorly, it's just annoying yeah so that is the liar revealed so that is when your protagonist has a lie and that is your primary dramatic tension for the plot is that they are lying about something very important and then get found out in the third act so something like i've not even seen this movie but i know it follows liar revealed oz the great and powerful this is one of the reasons why i have no desire to see the movie is because i'm like that's a liar revealed story one, I know what's going to happen, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, again, romance reader, they end up together at the end. The lie revealed, you, you know the plot points and you know that they're probably going to you know, be revealed and somehow be forgiven, even if maybe they shouldn't be. But what, what, what made me realize that I had to accept that sometimes it's not a bad plot is that so on TV tropes, they often have a quote to demonstrate the trope. And the quote for Lie Revealed is from Battlestar Galactica, my all-time favorite television show. And I think it's a significantly different take than your classic Liar Revealed. Basically, in the miniseries, Adama tells everyone that he knows the location of Earth. And the, the quote on the page is when President Laura Rosin is like, hey, I know there's no Earth and you just lied to everyone. And he's like, yes, yes, I did. But I had to give them hope. Which one is a non-selfish reason for the lie. That's a good thing. Also, I find it usually does work better when someone else knows what the, the lie and so, or like they immediately call out that, you know, that's a lie. And it's also worth noting on BSG, it is a source of tension. It is not the sole source of tension. Because whether or not Adama's lie gets revealed, there are still five billion sources of tension based on keeping these people alive. It did not occur, even occur to me that that was a liar revealed story because... Yeah, the, them finding out is kind of a big deal, but there's so much else going on with that story. But yes, your your, your classic lie revealed that it's the main tension of this, and it's you know more of a one shot story, so like a movie or a book. And in this case, there's only one actual good one I can think of, which was uh, Courtney Milan, the Duke who didn't, is a lie revealed story, but she does a twist on it. I won't tell you what, because it's good. And the twist basically saves the whole thing. I was a little hesitant about that because I've been burned by other liar revealed and romance is just like extra bad. Because again, someone you're supposed to love and care for and you're lying to them, that's not good. You're building your relationship on a foundation of lies. Yeah, so that's a good one. But your standard liar revealed, I I never want to see it again. So what do you never want to see again? 
kill the cutie. Oh, kill the cutie. Which apparently Vicky had not scrolled ahead to see that I had listed as one of my least favorite tropes. And I had listed this as one of my least favorite tropes for a very simple reason. The cutie in question tends to be my favorite character. Yep. You have a bad luck in loving the characters who die. I mean, I, I was joking that I was just going to list my least favorite trope as killing Alan Tudyk. Does that happen that often? It happened a lot more around the era of Firefly. Now that he mostly plays animals, <laughs> he tends to live. But because I tend to love the donut bringer, a lot of writers like to raise the stakes by killing the donut bringer. Because it's usually easy to do and... Often they're sort of the emotional heart of things. And so everyone cares about the cutie dying. And you know your bad guy is bad if they can kill the cutie. That's true. Yeah. But I promise there are other ways to create stakes that don't involve killing my favorite character all the time. Don't love the cutie. It'll hurt you in the end. Yeah. I try not to sometimes. I tried so hard for Wash to not be my favorite character. Alas, it was not to be. I am who I am. And who I am is someone who loves the character who gets the donuts. Stop killing the cutie! Justice for the cuties. How are we going to try and get justice for the cuties? Somehow this is a transition. (laughs) All right. My last last trope I do not like is another one that, I mean, there must be some good examples of this, but I am hard-pressed to come up with any, and that is the MacGuffin. So MacGuffin is a term for an object or element in a story that drives the plot but serves no further purpose. It probably won't pop up again, it won't explain the ending, and it won't do anything of any significance. And that's bad. This is like the anti-Chekhov's gun. It is Chekhov's garbage that somehow is important. And so We're going to go back into our Star Wars examples because probably the peak example of MacGuffin chasing nightmare is the rise of Skywalker because they're spend the whole movie chasing one MacGuffin only to go find a different MacGuffin so that they can find Palpatine who is somehow back from the dead. It's like they had a bunch of planets they wanted to have scenes on. And they needed an excuse to get them from one planet to the next. And thus there was a MacGuffin. Yeah. On each planet, it had its own MacGuffin. You had to go over to this planet with the festival to get the one thing. And then, oh, then you got to go over to the forest mood of Endor to use the stupid dagger that you found on the other planet to locate something on the Death Star. And this one is even worse, the the dagger, because if you stop and think about it, it makes no sense. It really doesn't. Most of the problems are there is is just nonsensical bad writing in that script. But this is not the only time that there is MacGuffin. MacGuffins are fairly common and they're just not good. Like you can at least make your MacGuffin something that's, you know, valuable. Like say the anti-MacGuffin would be Indiana Jones, he is searching for a specific thing, but it's a thing that has value, that he wants for the value, like, he's looking for the Holy Grail because it is the Holy Grail. You know, Monty Python also wanted to find it. Everyone wants it. It's the Holy Grail. (laughs) It's a great thing to look for because there is inherently value in it. And once you find the Holy Grail, you're probably not going to just, like, shove it in your pocket and forget about it. Meanwhile, Tross was just collecting enough plot coupons to send away for their Palpatine. All right, second style that we've listed ones we don't like and ones we do like. I'm going to take a look at how we use them specifically in our own writing. Well, I killed the chosen one. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. Which does lead into the, one of the things I use them for is they're a convenient vocabulary of shorthand for explaining what's going on here. Mm-hmm. I can say I killed the chosen one and, you know, this is the chapter where they do have to do fake dating. Mm-hmm. You're going to have a general sense of what's going to happen. If you say I had characters do fake dating, you know that I guess these two characters are going to have to get together at some point. If one does fake dating, one must actually get the characters together eventually. It's a rule. Yes. Tropes are common story elements. So they are the vocabulary we use to describe our story in a very specific way without having to go into excruciating detail about 
what world building you've done, you can just say, we got this character trope going along this narrative trope as a high level overview of what sort of story you're getting. That makes a lot of sense. And I feel like it does in some ways tie into what you've got written in the show notes next. Yes. So the main thing I use tropes for are my character sheets. I actually even have in my character sheet that I use a section for tropes that a specific character fits. When I'm coming up with the character, I sort of try to think of other characters that are similar. And I find early on this really helps me get a read on the character. Recently, I've just been thinking about a pair of queens a lot, of course, and I've also been playing Fire Emblem Three Houses, and I realized that one of my romantic leads is actually pretty similar to Claude from Three Houses. And so when I'm working at the character sheet next, I'm going to look at Claude's page on TV tropes and just kind of get an idea of which tropes I'm actually wanting to match. This isn't fan fiction. Edmund is not Claude. Edmund does have some similarities with Claude, though, and so I find that that could be really good to recognize characters that are similar and what you like about those characters and what you would like to maybe draw upon when you're coming up with your own character. This is how I end up with a point on my outline of, this is the chapter where Andre doesn't die. Because he's the cutie? Yes. We will not be killing the cutie. No cuties are going to get killed in Margaret's books. You can safely love the cutie in Margaret's book. Yes. <laughs> How else do you like to use tropes? I often will use tropes to figure out what's missing early in my planning process. So I guess it's kind of similar to what you're doing with the character sheets. Like at one point I was trying to flesh out who else I needed in Kaya Starwind. Because Kaya Starwind is Jaina Solo. Mm -hmm. But I was fleshing out the bits that were not me filing serial numbers off Star Wars because... It's not fan fiction with the, na- with the names changed and the serial numbers filed off. It is its whole own story based on things that I wish Star Wars had done. And Mary Robinette in- <laughs> endorses this, so. <laughs> but one thing I quickly realized is there was no one to bring the donuts. Mm-hmm. I needed my non-action guy. And that's when I started developing the character of Nicolau, who is her best friend, who is an aspiring actor who works as a clerk and knows the ins and outs of bureaucracy, but that's his skill set. But he, he's coming along because Kaya's his friend. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, moral support. It's an important thing. And there actually is a scene where he solves the problem by bringing donuts. Naturally. Because I'm writing this and I can't. He also does not die. The character who brings donuts in Margaret's books will not die. Yes. The character who brings donuts in my books might be poisoning everyone. Yes, entirely possible. <laughs> and that's the difference between us. <laughs> Perhaps. I wouldn't put it past my donut bringers to bring poison donuts to their enemies. When that is your skill set, you got to do what you got to do. Because th- they still want to help and no one's going to suspect them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of the time we have these tropes for a reason. And sometimes if something feels like it's missing, it's because there's a character trope that really would influence the direction of the story. And I haven't created that character yet. I love Nicolau. That's good. I'm glad he's not going to die. Me too. So that actually fits quite nicely with my last thing that I mainly use tropes for, which is again a character thing. And if I'm designing an ensemble and I know how many characters are going to be in the ensemble, I can use some tropes to try and make sure that the, the characters are all unique from each other and that the ensemble is fairly balanced. So there are tons of ensemble tropes on TV tropes. You got like the Freudian trio, the four-man band, the five-man band, etc. I'm just going to do a quick look at the Freudian trio because it's only three characters, so it's shorter. <laughs> so it's kind of the idea of two foils plus balance. It's called the Freudian trio is because one of the ways to define it is it's the someone is the id, someone is superego, and someone is the ego. But more commonly, they're called the Kirk, the Spock, and the McCoy. <laughs> if Spock is the superego, Kirk is the id, and poor... Poor McCoy is the ego who gets to reconcile the id and superego. Guess who's my favorite character on Star Trek? Could it be McCoy? I don't know why you'd think that. I have no idea. It's nothing to do with his opinions on Silicon-based life. 
No, no, not at all. As a starting point, the tropes are really good because you can make sure that each of your character is distinct in their personality from each other. You want characters that are going to play off each other in interesting ways, and you get that more from differences than similarities. If if they're too similar, you're you're going to have those moments of, oh, I I haven't had Bob do anything because there's nothing Bob can do that Steve can't. I'm already using Steve. Mm Mm-hmm. And this also would be helps to go back to my you know previous point where if you know that this character is the Spock, well, you can draw upon what you like about Spock when you're coming up with his personality and characterizations. Be like, okay, he he's a little could be a little more analytical. Maybe he has green blood. Maybe he just has really hilarious deadpan comic timing. I mean, I'm always up for that. So particularly if he has someone who he's uh, snarking with, who he have an enemy's lovers romance with. <laughs> And finally, tropes are really useful, but also, frankly, they're fun. That's probably why I like the meta storytelling so much, because I described it as playing with the tropes. Mm-hmm. And so it's fun to, you know, look at your story and realize, oh, what tropes am I using? And it probably is good to be aware of what you're using again, because you can avoid the cliches of your trope. Yeah, and, or lean into them. <laughs> yeah, be like, you know what? I really like the... Took a level in badass, so I am going to craft an arc so one of my characters gets to take a level in badass. Even the stuff that is a little cliche, if you're being intentional about it. Mm-hmm. And also, it, it does definitely help like, put into words what you like about a thing. You know, I like the Vampire Diaries because it has these tropes. These are good tropes that I enjoy. And so, again, maybe those are tropes that I will want to, you know, use in my own work. And then sometimes you have a revelation of, oh, I really like enemies to lovers. <laughs> And then sometimes you just end up swirling on TV tropes and suddenly, oh, it's two hours have passed and you're still on Claude Von Regan's page reading every link. Look, once you've clicked the crowning moment of awesome article, you're doomed. Please be careful out there. If you go to TV tropes, either have a set limit when you need to get off or don't have any plans for the next couple of hours. Stop opening new tabs you will end up with 20 million. But I think your browser will probably crash before that. I've seen people's browsers with a lot of tabs. I'm not a that many tabs person. That would drive me nuts. I have a tab problem, but sooner or later, my browser does hit a limit. (laughs) But they make me happy. Mm -hmm. Much like our happily ever after. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with that. Nice segue. I try. All right, and that brings us to our HEA, or Happily Ever After, where we talk about things that are making us happy. So, Margaret, what is making you happy? Well, for one thing, being able to stretch my shoulder is making me happy. Yay! Mobility in once broken limbs. It's, it's my favorite new trick. I, I realized at the doctor yesterday that I could do it now. But my actual answer is Comic-Con. Woo! Comic-Con! Which happened! Yes, Comic-Con was good. We, we got to dress up and I got to wear my new Leku. They were good. They're very cool. I, I like the Leku a lot. I really like them. We're not, we'll definitely post some pictures up on Facebook or Twitter uh, of photos of our costumes because we had fun. Cosplay is good times. And, and I, I look forward to getting to wear the costume again at some point when it's not pouring rain and we can take pictures outside without a mask on. That would be handy, yeah. The Saturday was pretty cold and wet and miserable, so we did not want to stay outside for picture taking. But I did get to fight with Han Solo about whether the ghost is better than the Falcon, which it is. It's important to to get that. I have also realized that if I'm wearing Hera, I need to assume it will take me twice as long to get anywhere than I think it would. <laughs> yeah, we definitely were getting stopped. I was in uh, Leia's New Hope dress with the cinnamon buns. So it's a good weekend for being stopped for costumes. My favorite, I think, shot would be uh, we found two other Leia's and we did the iconic Spider-Man clone pointing at people. It's a good photo. Yeah, it turned out really well. So that was very funny. I'm glad that the Hoth Leia thought of it. And we had, so we had Hoth Leia, then we had Bush Leia. I didn't spend the entire day looking for a Mandalorian to pretend to give parenting advice to, but it was something I was watching for and I got the photo. And they had some of the dub cast of Sailor Moon, and a lot of things make sense now. Yeah. 
It was a, that was a chaotic dubbing experience. Uh, and we also got to hear from the, the main puppeteer of BB-8, which was really fascinating. And I need to watch some of the behind the scenes features to watch him running around in green, pushing this ball around the desert. And we also had Akbar's puppeteer. And we had 45 minutes of people getting in and out of Daleks. Yep. And there were chairs. There were also chairs. Chairs were good. So other than chairs, what's making you happy? All right. Well, this is this is a repeat because I've definitely chosen this before as my HEA, but it's going to have to go to Fire Emblem's Three Houses. Because yes, I chose it before, but in the last month I have played the game through twice and I'm in the middle of another playthrough. I'm actually pretty close to the end now. I'm doing Azure Moon, which is Dimitri's route, which is also known as Dimitri Needs Therapy. Because, <laughs> oh God, Dimitri. Oh, he is a mess. I thankfully have just gotten to the point where he starts becoming less of a mess. So we're good. I'm, I'm liking him again. It's fun. I, I think I will take a break, at least from this Fire Emblem. I have a few of the, of the older games that I, I've been thinking I might replay. Fire Emblem is, like, for me, the perfect game because it has great story, great characters. And I actually like the gameplay a lot. That's always exciting. I, I don't hate the gameplay in something like Dragon Age or Mass Effect, but I'm a button masher in those. I'm just like, bah, 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 hit the button, shoot the thing. Oh no, I'm shooting nothing. Uh, my aim is terrible. Oh good, Garrus is here and he's a sniper, so I'm good. We're, we're fine. And then sometimes I just hand the controller to Ryan. Yeah, but in Fire Emblem, it's all about strategy and this unit can shoot fireballs at a distance. So we'll move him over there. But if anyone gets close to him, he will die. So we got to stick a person tank in front of him. Ideally, the tank that you ship him with. <laughs> yes, yes. It's a great way to get your good supports. And yes, you could have a lovely romance with your prince who needs therapy. And he will be stable through the power of my love. Yes, it's a delightful tactical dating sim. Yes, so really enjoying it. I played all four of the main routes once, and I've and two of them I've played twice now. I love games that have replayability, and this one is built in so much. This is why it is my favorite Fire Emblem, because none of the other Fire Emblems are quite this replayable. So it's good. Excellent. And there's a sequel of some sorts, or remake, I don't even know. It's something called Three Hopes coming out. I don't know what, really understand what it is yet, but I will look into it. But it's a thing that is connected. And there's no rule that is stopping you from picking it as your HEA twice, I guess. We make the rules and I say there's no rule. There we go. It's also, I think, been like two years since I picked it. So like, whatever. Yeah, time is fake. Yeah. It's been like two months since we recorded, so. Yeah, yeah. So, but hopefully everyone out there has stuck with us through our weird long gaps. And so thank you as always for listening. And if you want to help support the show, we are on Ko-Fi. It's ko-fi.com slash needs for words podcast. That's all one word. We're on Twitter at needs for words and our website is needsmorewords.com where you can find information about our reading challenge if you missed it last time. And if you do use Storygraph, there is also a Storygraph challenge. Just search for needs more words rainbow reading challenge. All right. And we'll talk to you at some point. We make no promises about when. Thank you for listening. Bye. Needs More Words is hosted by Vicki Martin and Margaret Hansen. This episode was edited by Vicki Martin. You can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Needs More Words. <laughs>